Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. My name is Michael Anthony Ingram, and again, welcome to the program. There are two words in the English language that, when combined, often carry with them painful stigma. Stigma wrapped in moral judgments, stereotypes, and fear. These words are mental and health, mental health. We live in a nation and a world that can be very condemnatory of individuals that live with mental illness or struggle with mental health so much so that people shy away from being honest about their true experiences. Vulnerability is viewed as weakness. Fear of being typecast as crazy makes people hesitant to share their thoughts and struggles for fear of whether or not other people will judge them or see their struggles as being valid. This is a story for so, so many people. Yet there is one area in our modern-day society where individuals find strength despite the stigma. This area is poetry. Poets are increasingly writing and sharing works that address mental illness, trauma, and other issues. Not only is vulnerability no longer viewed as a weakness, it also empowers those who listen to do the same. Tonight, you will hear poets lift the veil about their experiences. They have found through self-care, professional mental health support, and the assistance of organizations such as the National Alliance on Mental Illness, ways in which to address stereotypes and stigma giving mental health awareness a positive platform that is much needed and welcome. Tonight, the very first poet, the very first poet, hails from Denver, Colorado. Her name is Dr. Christina Bijan. She is an award-winning historian, theater artist, and poet. I give you Dr. Bijan. Um. Thank you so much, Dr. Ingram. It's such an honor to be here with you all tonight. And yes, greetings from Colorado. Um, Why is mental illness important? I'm going to say just a couple of words and then share three poems. Um, I should first say that I have been suffering, um, I would say, in the mental health department, but um, from a mental illness since 2005. I'm a trauma victim. I'm a victim of both inherited trauma from the crimes of communist Romania and also sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, Mental health is important to talk about because mental illness is invisible. And because it is invisible, that is why Dr. Dr. Ingram uh, described the stigma that we sufferers encounter on a daily basis. Because it cannot be seen, therefore, um, people are scared of it. They don't understand it. They're not willing to learn about it. Uh, For me, poetry has been my way of healing myself, um, and also I found my way of sharing my story. And my poetry book, Green Horses on the Walls, came out last year, and I can't tell you um, how uh, just encouraging and and, uh, also surprising it has been Um, people have received it um, with such an open mind, which I did not expect at all. (laughs) And a lot of my poems have to deal with mental illness. So I'm going to share three, as I promised. 
Um, and you also notice that they uh, all have to do with Romania in some way. <laughs> the first is equilibrium. Things could be worse. Parents with cancer. Love of your life leaves you for the priesthood. You could have more than mental health issues and actually be totally insane. You could never pause to look at the top of buildings. You could be too self-absorbed to think about your family. You could slip and fall, be hit by a bus, forget history. Be annoyed by the symphony of honking cars and barking dogs. Never cry, not sleep enough. Swear off chocolate. You could blitz through life. You could take those you love for granted, be cheap and petty, unforgiving and stupid. But yesterday morning, I saw a young city man buy an old countryman breakfast. And somehow it wasn't charity. It was normal. It was right. People may shit on each other here, and we're talking about Romania, but that is not all they do. And when it feels like too much, which it often does, I know I can go home. I know I have a home. And how many people can say that? I have needed to leave and return so many times. I don't think it will ever stop. All I want now is equilibrium. Vez, acum stai in equilibrium. See, now you are standing in equilibrium. Bunico, the grandfather, said to his granddaughter as she balanced on a parking pole between the Lutheran church and the royal palace. And I walked by on my way to the gym in a desperate, vain attempt to feign a routine in this Balkan maze of nebunie, craziness, throw my hands up, breathe deeply, and tell the stories that were told to me. Someone, somewhere, even here, is listening. And the next one is called Hashtag Simplicity. You will notice D.C. represented in this one. Um, an American girlfriend I met in Bucharest recently told me that the cure to all my woes would be to keep it simple. Try telling that to the D.C. girl living the millennial dream of a federal contract in her own nonprofit. Family duties and issues. Can't go to N.C., North Carolina. Can't bring myself Need to make love to a man, but D.C. guys just don't get down like that. I tried again with the perfect candidate with my background, languages, and baggage. He came to me in a dream to tell him to try again. And in real life, he texted me that it's not me, it's him. After apologizing for taking a week to reply because it was the end of the fiscal year at the World Bank, I said, thanks, Alex. I learned the simplicity lesson a long time ago. June 10, 2009, I lost a colleague to a brutal racist attack on our federal building. Hearing his wife's cries at the funeral told me what to do. I gave up a job in Romania and any prospects in the U.S. to move to an island in the middle of the Pacific. And keep it simple. Just love my man, do what he needed, simply be there, do the groceries, make love, talk to him about his job and anxieties. I was ready. But nothing could prepare me for island life. Everyone knew he had an affair with a tourist before I arrived. He likes blondes, I said of my brown partner trying to laugh it off. He pretended we were married everywhere, to the gardener and his pregnant wife, to the ambassadors of Australia, Kiribati, PNG, New Zealand, and their wives, 
I was owned like, a, like women on that island are, but without any of the security. We fought worse in the third world than our second and first world previous versions of self knew possible. Exile from bedrooms, visits to work to make up and cry, and one day he raised a hand to me, and I knew it was over. I left under the guise of having a breakdown, which I had had before. I paid both his and my tickets to take me home, and he never paid me back. On the phone, he would yell after I told him my father had been diagnosed with cancer. Port Vila is my city, Christina. Vanuatu is my country. As I'd asked where and when we were supposed to see each other again. It's been simple, eating grapefruit from the front yard. But that's not what my Bucharest friend meant. Simple as someone to talk to. Simple as someone who won't try to use you. Simple as someone who can listen. Simple as someone who will hold you. Simple as someone who won't judge. Simple as someone who isn't entitled. Simple as someone who can love. I told the same friend yesterday that I just need someone to hug. She told me, Sophia, her daughter, has a pillow. Grab a pillow. Sophia's 11, I shot back. But maybe Bucharest's friend has a point. She and I can talk endlessly about extramarital affairs, transcontinental Skype sex, yet as we humans each close our eyes and hope to open them in the morning, it's just me, just as I was at prepubescent 11, before hormones drove me to lose everything and tempt me to compromise my empire of one right now. Luckily, I currently own four pillows. Hashtag simplicity and i will save the third poem for uh the next round um because i've met my time so that's the end thank you dr ingram thank you dr bijan a question for you what did poetry why did you why did you choose poetry as your form for an outlet I love that question because poetry changed me or chose, changed me, yeah, but also it, it chose me. I never went after poetry. I didn't even know what spoken word poetry was until I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2010. Um, and I had, yeah, I had always been scribbling in notebooks. I'm a writer. I'm a creative person. I've written tons of plays. Um, and in 2010, I found myself in a very lonely situation it was right after the poem that I just read it, in terms of the chronology of my life it was right after that so I was totally alone and felt very abandoned and um, knew about the busboys and poets down the street and had written something small so just showed up there by myself on a Wednesday and shared the poem and then there was no looking back <laughs> all right very nice so that's how it happened thank you thank you very much and we look forward to hearing your voice again. The next person on the program tonight hails from Manassas, Virginia. His name is Brian Donald James. He's a poet, a novelist, and public speaker. Brian, good evening. Good evening, everyone. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be back on the show. Um, when I think of... Um, mental health, I think of uh, 
being a seven-year-old child uh, and staring at my father as he lay in state in the casket. And and those feelings and that anxiety and that fear, I said, you know, I'm going to have to do something with this anxiety. Either it's going to eat me up or either I'm going to create something beautiful out of it. Um, and from then I started scribbling things, and um, uh, that will be the um, subject of the very first poem that I will read tonight, um, a very short poem. The only uh, poem that is titled Untitled among my 200 and 300, uh, because it deserves that honor. Um, but in speaking of mental health, I was thinking about the African-American community. Uh, you know, we do not uh, seek this help that we so desperately uh, need, because there is a stigma that has been placed, uh, that we place upon ourselves um, to try to block that. Dr. Joy DeGruy uh, had a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome that deals with generational trauma, of uh, the African-American experience is not an excuse, but is a fact-based theory about the hopelessness and the depression, the self-destructive outlook that we have um, and our propensity uh, for violence and, 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 and anger. And um, the rest of my pieces were really centered around that. Uh, my grandfather was from um, Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, he was a soldier. I don't know if he was very patriotic, but he wanted to get the hell out of uh, Bur uh, Birmingham, <laughs> so he, he went and joined the Army. Um, but he had a lot of issues, you know, alcoholism, gambling, things of this nature. And when I finally met this man because he had divorced my grandmother, we went to visit him as a child, I looked in his eyes and I could tell that he was just in a state like, what has happened to my life? You know, so if we don't get a hold of this trauma and these things that we do, uh, it, life will pass us by, you know. And uh, upon further research, I found out that his father uh, died uh, at 31 in the midst of the civil rights activity. So I'm not quite sure how, how that was um, done, but uh, I suspect this rather uh, dubious end that he met. So this might uh, be some trauma that he suffered, and thus, you know, he continued this destructive behavior. Um, but the first person I would get into, piece I would get into, excuse me, is called Entitled. I will read that, and then I will skip to the other uh, two. And then uh, we'll wait to the next round for the other poems. Uh, this piece is called Untitled. My father left long ago someone I did not know, just barely a man. He died one night, a young poet of promise in his own right. He wrote of love. He wrote of time, both things lost to his cradled child, left behind, gifted, they say, with words and feelings. So when I write and when I pray, I feel his being. And that was written as a nine-year-old child trying to cope uh, with my father's death. Uh, the next piece is going to go into um, domestic violence and things of that nature and mental health. It's called Norma Ray. As far back as she could remember, she loved him. It must have been right after the war they met at the Jack and Jill formal dance on the concert hall over on Parker Avenue, where only the most affluent blacks would gather for their debutante balls and social calls. Her and her sisters clad in glamorous dresses, wearing mama's furs, and their hair pressed long with 
fold diamond chokers on delicate necks, resting above cleavage, hiding beating hearts as fast as hummingbirds. They were as pretty as white lilies in Virginia fields, and in time, they would all marry soldiers. Then she laid eyes on him. He was as fine as Billy Eckstein, standing straight in his moss-colored uniform, striped on shoulders, honey-brown skin, and a crooked grin, and a voice deep and resounding like thunder in the distance. His speech was not delicate but courteous. His breath smelt sweet and dark like plantation molasses. Now, Norma heard about those Alabama boys. They had a reputation of loving on their women hard and the thickness in her thighs and hips made him handsy. Yet still he treated her kindly, and with his shiny shoes, his shiny car, and his shiny eyes, a star fell and a spell was cast. So she slightly tilted her head for the kiss of corn liquor, fresh and wet upon lips, as Sam Cooke played on the radio. As a husband, he provided, but it came as a cost. See, men in those times of struggle had ideas about what's going to be and what ain't going to be, abusing the only thing they could control, abusing those who loved them the most, letting the sting of his backhand crash down like seas on rocks, leaving salt and foam to taste, staggering home late from whiskey journeys with a little bunny cat in his cigarette box of his socks because, see, thieves be looking for wallets. He would come in craving sweets, so Norma Ray would find Katie did ten cans empty, but fragrant with the aroma of chocolate and caramel. He would come home craving sweets and welcome the taste of flesh under her house coat, and after love making fall to rest with the record player playing low, sometimes with the needle repeatedly skipping beats. Norma could never vilify him nor leave. She just couldn't abandon him. At times he was loving. As a father, well, each child tells their own tale. See, he never beat them well, only the boy, as his father did him. They were all careful to mind their manners, being too scared to displease. Children tend to behave when they confuse pain with discipline. Now all of their rooms are empty, old trophies and grade school photos among the dust. They have grown up in the midst of this. They don't call now, just like his money. He may have gambled them, gambled them away. He ain't hardly go to church. See, he ain't like the way folks, uh, folks uh, in church judge on him. He wanted to be free. Said the last time he felt like he was free when he was fighting overseas. So he fought wars at home, expressing love to was the only enemy that he could never conquer, leaving the family to be comfortable in misery and joy all the way from a young Sam Cooke to a late Marvin Gaye, this love, a long, slow drag of good and bad times. She wondered if he found newly found freedom in death. See, women like Norma Ray ain't ever going to give up on you, even when perhaps they should. Enabling is the mother of sin, but she would never vilify him because as far back as she could remember, she loved him. Thank you. And the last piece this round will be the tear collectors. If you stared with venomous glares, clenched your teeth through jaws set in stone, twisted your mouth to hurl spit, to sprout hatred, used your fist to pound into flesh, set snarling dogs upon children, and hid under white sheets for newly found courage. 
if you released your unholy energies upon those who had no refuge, release your unholy marriage of arrogance and unruly law upon the innocent and the virtuous, then yes, you have wreaked fear within, without remorse, as if there was no divinity in the universe. Remember, we are the children born from ebony and indigo. The reflection of our ancestors' cries, they exist in the midnight of our skins. They are in the skyline of our eyes, dark planets against the moon's eclipse. They are the rhythm flowing in our veins. We are the collectors of their tears, the dust of their bodies released into atmosphere and scattered in time. Now, no longer are they formless. From their pain, we reborn the art of verse. We are the collectors of their tears. Yes, all nations and peoples of suffrage born to reside in solidarity. Nay, we will never taste defeat. You will never conquer peace. We are the collectors of their tears, and even in your deformity, your foul deeds, we survived. We created beauty, a strength unyielding our greatest inheritance. From an ancient people facing life at its worst and horrid death, still did not weep for themselves but for you. Yes, they wept for you, as you must face your impending and internal, uh, eternal judgment, for there is a divinity in the universe. Thank you. Brian, thank you. Incredible work. You know, thank you. As I stated earlier, vulnerability is viewed as weakness, especially for men, stereotypically for men. How are you able to combat that weakness in your poetry, being a man? How are you able to combat that? Well, I just got her on the strip that I, you know, I'm a human being. You know, as I as we yes. discussed earlier, many times you and I would discuss. You know. Uh, uh, above being a black man, which I'm vehemently proud of, I know that I'm a human being first, right? And so a human mm-hmm. being has uh, strengths and weaknesses just like everyone else. Um, and um, it's a choice, you know, in many uh, situations, uh, if you're going to let something affect you or not. Sometimes we bring about our own demise, allowing others to put uh, their images of what we should be upon ourselves, and we hold ourselves back that way. All right. Very nice. And thank you again. And we're ready for the next round. I'd like to introduce now Jackie Oldham. Jackie hails from Baltimore, Maryland. She is a writer and a poet. Her personal blog, BaltimoreBlackWoman.com, is on WordPress and is now in its seventh year. Hello, Jackie. Hello, Michael, and thank you so much for having me tonight. I just have to say that Christina and Brian's work has been phenomenal uh, reading tonight, and I'm I'm really honored to be in this company. Um, My history with mental illness goes back to my childhood. I suffered chronic depression from the age of seven years old, and um, was in psychiatric care from the age of 7 to 11, and then from uh, part of my teen years, parts of my adulthood, and later I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Uh, You would think that all of that is a double whammy, but um, I've, I've managed to make a real life 
and succeed in spite of and some in some way because of the struggles I've had with mental illness. The first poem I want to share is was actually published in the spring edition 1993 of Smooth Sailing, which was a newsletter published by the Depression and Related Affective Disorders Association uh, that was part of Johns Hopkins' uh, Department of Psychiatry. This first poem is called Nuclear Meltdown. It starts with a shudder, a nervous flutter, as control cells zap out and circuits overload. Pacing the floor at 3 a.m., no sleep tonight, but you have to get up in three hours. Turn out the light, stare into the darkness, toss, turn. Your brain burning, soul churning. You've just nodded off when the alarm clock shatters your nerves. The numb skull shuts out the sound calls in sick, turns blind to the dawn, shuts curtains and doors, melts down under the covers to blessed, silent, dreamless sleep. Twelve hours later, a semi-human form emerges from the rubble. Perhaps you'll face tomorrow, tomorrow, I will keep the perfect balance tomorrow, the smile on my face, every hair in place, not a trace of fear, never shed a tear tomorrow. That is a portrait of depression. My second poem, which is unpublished, is called Unpublished unflinching selfies and it speaks to kind of the duality of how we see ourselves and how others see us and what our expectations and others are unflinching selfies caught in the glare of the bathroom light She stands forthright in front of the white door, straight ahead, unsmiling, but confident in the truth of her demeanor. Brows furrowed, eyes coal black, a sag below the blind eye, giving way to the slope of her broad cheekbones and down to her full brown lips and small chin. Yet she also knows what is expected of her. Shrouded in the soft glow of her bedroom, hurricane lamp, and television screen, her black art a frame behind her, she sits, her trademark smile, with cheeks further broadening, teeth glowing, radiant in love-giving. This next poem is uh, one of two, and I'm saving the the second one, hopefully, for a 
uh, another round. But these two, this poem talks to the stigmatization of mental illness and is essentially my life story. There was a little girl who bore the stigmata of being different from the moment of her birth. Born black and prematurely in the early 1950s, confined to an incubator and separated from her parents for the first three months of life, she missed the connection of love and belonging. She was clingy, shy, withdrawn, overly sensitive. She took refuge in books and music, her secret powers. But these powers further stigmatized her. She swallowed the names she was called. Aloof, big for her britches. Crybaby, misfit. So she buried her secret powers, using them only for herself. As she grew Her own body betrayed her, protruding and curving at age seven. Depression and secret thoughts of suicide, if only to kill the pain of existing, followed. Psychotherapy began. Despite herself, she embraced her superpowers, performing songs and writing poetry in high school. Depression and secret thoughts of suicide followed. Non-lethal doses of pills to kill the pain of existing followed. Psychotherapy began again. Antidepressants were added. College was a challenge, but she soldiered through, majoring in English instead of her dream, psychology. Career was a challenge, but she worked hard, learned the craft of editing. At 29, bipolar disorder appeared out of nowhere. She shouldered through the disruptions, the strange voices and visions in her head, two hospitalizations in one year. Lithium was added to the antidepressants. The mania disappeared, but depression lingered. She went through every antidepressant available until finally she found the one that worked. Bipolar became her new superpower, giving her confidence to be herself. She excelled at her work despite periodic depression while buying a home and caring for her aging parents, retiring at age 60 to be a full-time caregiver. A year later, her kidneys began to fail. The damage had begun with her first dose of lithium three decades before. To her psychiatrist's fear and dismay, she stopped taking lithium, but continued the antidepressant. Eight years later, her kidneys returned to normal. Her selfhood finally complete her superpowers she fully unleashed in poetry, prose, and song. Thank you. Jackie, that was beautiful. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for sharing and not shying away from sharing your story. Not at all. Not at all. In a poetic I hope way. that it helps someone else. Yes. Thank you, Jackie. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the poem found you instead of you finding Absolutely. the poem. Absolutely, yes. Um, writing was my lifelong way of dealing with myself and the world around me, and I gravitated to poetry at an early age, even though I also write other forms. All right. Thank you, Jackie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you on the next round. All right. All right. The next performer tonight is a young man with incredible talent. He's called Bipo Phoenix. He's a D.C. native dedicated to destigmatizing the manic depressive spectrum. He advances the politics of collective liberation through poetry and street art. He's the creator of two zines of poetry and has an online presence at BipoRevolution.com. Bipo, are you with me? I'm with you, Michael. How are you? Yes. Great. What a You're great on. what a great evening. Um, Christina, it's a blessing to be to share airspace. We've been in each other's um, recovery journeys for more than a decade now. Um, Brian, pleasure to meet you. Jackie, uh, amazing. And I, uh, I chose the poem to read first, um, just listening to your last poem, actually. Um, this poem is called Supernatural Manic Magic. You see us dance among you, but fail to sense our Jedi powers in emergence, conjure rites of love and liberation, aspiring towards an all-encompassing transformational resurgence. We sink our bipolar minds through the meditative practices of erotic pleasure and service. I can't choose my apocalypse squad, but I can recruit a fractalized global battalion of samurai neurodivergence. Don't tell me to stop just because they say so. Our dope insurrectionary beats are going to drop both in utero and in vitro. We cyberwire our magic manic minds, gestating our own master cerebro. We craft the power to organize our mutant kind into a karmic crescendo. Don't propagate a theory if you don't apply it in practice. Practice is a meaningless concept without intentional cohesion and accountable process. Left ideologues of many stripes are ensnared in a cerebral and transactional axis. What we need is emergent strategy where biomimicry and relational intentionality flourish from a place deep inside us. We are divine spiritual beings having a temporal human experience. The melodic flow of a subterranean flute amplifies our natural resilience. When we focus on critical connections, not critical mass, we amplify our movement's resonance. By uprooting the deceptive logic of domination, we sow potent seeds that can deconstruct cognitive dissonance. I saw a pyramid of pure light manifest in the candle I burned tonight. We must imagine vistas of boundless possibility to save our species from planetary blight. Ancient skills and divine texts will reemerge to guide our sacred fight. If we aspire to godlike, who can foresee what masterpieces our descendants will write? The substances that open me up to visions can be like a toxic and visceral brush with death. It is most safe to find insight naturally through intent observation and intentional breath. I am manic, and it is magic, but it needs to be held close to the chest. 
I treasure the many circles that surround me and that see my mind in all its depth. It is said that the future of the future will still contain the past. We will forage for magic mushrooms in their, nat- in, in their nascent ma- matrix of transformational craft. It's time for radical freedom to raise a proud polynational flag. Our supernatural manic magic rises transcendent, moving like water in search of a grounded evolutionary path. And I think I'm just going to, I think I only have time for one before the 10 minutes is up. I wasn't totally watching what time it was when I started. Um, But the, um, so substance use um, and mental health challenges are both part of my story. And this is a poem called Stigma, where I address both of those and also kind of relate to some of the political issues that motivate my work as well. So the poem is called Stigma. I am proud of how I show up for life on the manic depressive spectrum. I am proud of my creativity and empathy and of my spiritual insights and practice. I resist the dogma that calls all of this a disorder because when balanced, my neurodivergent mind is open to inspiration that is both ecstatic and grounded. At the extremes of florid mania or psychotic depression, my condition is pathological but I am not defined by my most difficult moments and refuse to be labeled by terminology that does not fit my lived experience. When it comes to mental health, stigma is a mind killer, and it stops millions from seeking support, recovery, and resilience. In this moment, COVID is ravaging our nation, just as the peril of our body politic accelerates with the prospect of our would-be Fuhrer stealing a second and maybe infinite term for fascism. In this moment, depression, anxiety, and intense grief are natural. We need to be starting conversations with one another, creating space for collective healing. My own healing has moved forward qualitatively through my recognizing that I struggle with addiction, which is, at least for me, definitely a toxic and potentially deadly disease. For years, I played with fire, cocaine, meth, alcohol, pot, or acid, all in search of a sustained celestial high that I have only found in recovery. I still have plenty of challenges to confront, but having a baseline of a sacred and sober high has transformed my reality. On both of these fronts, mental health and addiction, stigma is a toxic mind killer. This social demon creates shame and silence where we are most in need of compassion, information, and radical honesty. I am guided by the belief that those of us who struggle with life's most vicious demons can become samurai daisha in the evolution of a new world. Stigma is our collective enemy. May we rise up for compassion, understanding, empathy, and collective liberation. Wow. Thank you, Bible Phoenix. Thank you so much. I have a question for you. Yeah. Based on what you know, what is the role of a poet in modern-day society? Um, well, you know, I feel like there are just poets everywhere. You know, I... Um, there are lots of little poetry circles in D.C. where I live and regular open mic events. It feels like there's a movement of people finding their voice in this medium. And um, 
I don't know that there is any one role, um, but for me, um, poetry is my main way of communicating with the world. It's my main way of recording my own internal thought process. It's the main political work I do at this point um, because I have um, grown beyond feeling compelled to just run to the next protest and the next action like a chicken with my head cut off. Um, right. I want to step back and have a bigger picture. Um, and for me, poetry is a way of synthesizing divergent themes that are rooted in a common reality. So my work deals with, you know, the vicissitudes of capitalism, mental health, mental illness, um, sexual liberation, spirituality, um, those are some of the main themes that I, that I weave in and out of different um, pieces. And um, of late, I've been exploring kind of different ways of seeing things spiritually, um, looking at astrology, looking at shamanic traditions, kind of researching indigenous African traditions, and, um, you know, just really trying to always be teachable. Um, I, someone I really respect said that the more you learn, the less you know you know. So there's mm. what you know, there's what you know you don't know, and then there's the unknown unknown. And the more you learn, the larger and larger that becomes. And so just being really humble about it is super important to me because, you know, I, I just I feel like I can always learn from anybody's feedback about my work. There's always yes. something to learn from, from what anyone has to say, even if you disagree with them. Um, you know, and I've, right. I've, I've taken to assuming that um, – part of that my own higher power gives its voice through many, many people. And it's my job to, to listen and just pay attention. Beautifully stated. Thank you so much. And we'll see you on the next round. Thank you, Sarah. All right. The next poet on the microphone tonight is Aaron R. Who hails from Arlington, Virginia. He's an editor producer and director of his own poetry videos and owner of Poetically Correct. More information can be found at AaronRPoems.com. Aaron, are you with me? Yes, sir. How you doing? All right, you're on. It's a privilege to be on the show again. Um, Also, um, shout out to everybody else that's been doing their poems. It's been an honor to just be on the show and to hear everybody's lovely work that they're doing. I think... um, one of the things that I pride myself off of as a poet is trying to make sure that I'm inclusive of, of societal issues. And I think that mental health is a huge issue in society. And I think, um, especially in the African-American issue, um, in the African-American society, like Brian was talking about, and a lot of people don't often get help. So I think using my platform and using poetry as a creative way to bring light on this subject that needs more light on it. And so from that, the poem that I'm going to share tonight is called Who's Really Mentally Ill? You know, the elephants in the room are always that person can't do it because he or she is mentally ill or, yeah, those are the people that have to see a therapist or, yeah, those are the people that need to take pills or you hear those are the people that have no friends or they're weirdos, they can't do anything You know, these stigmas never end. But what's the big deal about people who get depressed, suicidal, hear voices, get anxious, or feel stressed? Better yet, 
what's really wrong about getting those symptoms addressed? And what about all the positive things that the quote-unquote mentally ill people do the best? And not mediocre, I mean better than the rest. Abraham Lincoln was depressed and suicidal, but he was also the 16th president of the United States. What a revival. Beethoven was called bipolar, but he still was and is a lot of people's idols. Isaac Newton, Ernest Hemingway, Michelangelo, Ted Turner, Max Webster, Vincent Van Gogh. The list of success stories just continues to grow. But unfortunately, not everybody gets the picture that I'm painting, though. They stood tall and they stood strong. Even though it appeared they were weak and would waver, they wouldn't fall and kept carrying along. Without a caterpillar struggles, there would be no butterflies. And we prevent the natural beauty if we don't give people their room to fly. People ask why do you get help as if there's something wrong with bettering self. True riches is with health, not with wealth. So make sure you take care of your mental health. You can also see this poem video at AaronRPoems.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Got a question for you. <laughs> I think I'm ready, Michael. I think I'm All ready. Right. I hope I'm ready. <laughs> no. Uh, you and I are in a conversation, and I'm going through stuff. But I don't want anybody to think that I'm crazy, Aaron. What should mm-hmm. I do? What should I do, my friend? See, that here we go again, Michael. You... <laughs> Um, you. I mean, should I write like about friends? it? Should I write it out? Yeah. Oh, oh, shoot. yeah, yeah. I definitely think so. You know, and I think that that's one of the good things about poetry and writing as well is because it just gives you a chance to have a perspective. You know, to share your own perspective, and I think oftentimes people miss that, and with poetry or writing you know, a creative outlet is kind of your unique way to share your own perspective and give people a chance to see things from your point of view. So I absolutely think that that's good to let out your emotions or your thoughts in some type of healthy way and give other people a chance to actually see where you're coming from. Oh, very nice. Thank you, sir. (laughs) You passed the test. (laughs) I know, man. I was sweating over here. I'm glad you're on the phone. You can't see me right now. No, but you're right. Being able to write about it, to get it out of your system, that's what's so critical about this whole entire exercise, being able to get it out of yourself on paper, being able to look at it, to recognize, no, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. There's something happening. I need to somehow find a way to work with it and find others who can assist me work with it, but I'm not going to claim that label of being crazy. That's what's so important. Thank you again. All right. I'd like to share a piece of poetry now by a person who emailed me from Labashida, Ireland. Her name is Madge O'Callaghan, and the piece is titled Saturday. Yes, I see you as you struggle to help her to gain composure, bring her some water, lie beside her on the bed, Stroke her cheek, kiss her softly, tell her that it won't be long now. That behavior is not appropriate in here, the security man tells you. 
Even us kiss. Kisses in my head. In public, in this place, where you are expected to wait for hours on end to have her seen, your love, your burden, your your girl with the long hair and the loudest voice, fighting with her invisible demons, hoisting herself up on one elbow now to shout obscenities at some imaginary foe dancing in her head. I see you, and to my shame, I see nothing. As the security man not joined by another burly bouncer confesses in earshot that he is fucking exhausted, having worked a double shift, having to keep an eye on the one on the left, mad as a hatter she is, and your man kissing the face off her, think he's in a bleeding hotel he does, I hear him, and to my shame, I say nothing. She dozes at last. Eleven hours, you tell me you've been here, waiting to see one, someone who will meet your girl for safety and care, someone who will slay her dragons, kill the voices in her head, calm the battles, save her from herself. But it's Saturday, you say. Wow. And here's another piece called I Can See the Tops of Trees, But I Can't Reach Them. I can see the tops of trees. I can see the tops of trees. But I can't reach them. Lord knows I've tried to reach the tops of trees in my mind, in my life, in my time. Yet every time I scale the heights of an old oak tree in order to reach the limb of the highest branch and touch the greenest leaf, reality gently but assuredly pushes me back down to the ground. And there I am again looking up at the tops of trees in my mind, in my life, in my time. I can see the peaks of mountains, but I can't reach them. Lord knows I've tried to reach the peaks of mountains in my mind, in my life, in my time. Yet every time I climb the cliffs of the craggiest mountain in order to taste the pureness of untainted snow, reality gently or confidently pushes me back down to the ground. And there I am again looking up at the peaks of mountains in my mind, in my life, in my time. I can see the crest of clouds. But I can't reach them, Lord knows I've tried to reach the crest of clouds in my mind. In my life, in my time. Yet every time I fold my arms in order to cradle a wisp of God's immaculate breath, reality gently but willfully pushes me back down to the ground. And there I'm again looking up at the crest of clouds in my mind, in my life, in my time. I can see the meridian of the sky. But I can't reach it. Lord knows I've tried to reach the meridian of the sky in my mind, in my life, in my time. Yet every time I stretch out my arms in order to seize a piece of Mount Olympus on high, reality gently but deliberately pushes me back down to the ground. And there I'm again looking up at the meridian of the sky in my mind, in my life, in my time. Reality, won't you stop pushing, and please, let me dream, let me reach, let me love, let me be. You know, as someone who lives with mental illness myself, 
there have been many times that I've felt as if I've attempted to reach the tops of trees and was unable to do so due to my thoughts. And I wanted reality to just stop pushing and allow me to reach my dreams and my goals. But due to mental illness, I felt that I've been unable to do that. But despite that, like many of the artists here tonight, we were able to conquer and overcome that to live a fulfilled life. What I'd like to do now is to bring in the president of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, the D.C. chapter, Ms. Jean Harris. Hello, Jean. Hello, Michael. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. I am so, so honored to be here tonight, uh, especially listening to those wonderful poets. Three of them I know personally, yes. you, David, and Christina. And to hear, and what I was thinking about as I was listening is, I am hearing and being in the presence of resilience and recovery. And what is important that I think for others who may be listening to realize is that uh, how common mental illness is in our society during ordinary times. And what, what, is, what do we imagine is happening now when we've been under a year of the most unusual circumstances that most of us have lived through in our lifetime? And to hear the poems today, I was just moved by every single one of your individual poems and how you express yourself. But I want to give some statistics for those listeners out there who may be still uh, struggling with even identifying or recognizing or seeking help, that you're not alone. Because right now, as of 2019, that was before the um, – COVID came to the United States, 20.6 of United States adults were affected by mental illness. That's one in five. 5.2% of United States adults were diagnosed with serious mental illness disorders. That's one in 20. 16.5 of United States youth from ages as young as six years old to the ages of 17 were living, struggling with some form of a mental illness. 24% of young adults from ages 18 to 25, 36% of adults ages 26 through 45 were diagnosed. These are the only diagnosed. Now think about all of the others out there who are going undiagnosed, unidentified, and untreated. 26.4% uh, of adults 45 to 64 years of age. And 13% of adults over 65 years old suffer with severe depression and other illnesses related to isolation and some mental disorders. 33.8% of adults live with co-occurrent disorders. That means they're um, utilizing substance as well as having a mental illness diagnosis. 
And unfortunately, these numbers do not reflect the significant number of individuals that are in the lesbian, gay, or bisexual parts of our society. And I just wanted to point that out to say what I was hearing tonight is resilience in the poetry and being honored to hear and listen to people um, express themselves. And hopefully some of your listeners who may be wondering or pondering where they are and what they need uh, need to recognize that there is hope and resilience. There are places like NAMI DC where we provide education, support, and advocacy to individuals, provide support groups twice a week now on Wednesdays from uh, 7 to 9 and Saturdays 2 or 4. And if all of that, you can contact us by calling our office number at 202-546-0646. We're, well, we're not in our office currently because of the restrictions, but we certainly are available by phone for anyone who needs us and we are still in business. And I just want to close with this remark, Michael. The past year, no doubt, challenged all of us in so many ways, emotionally, physically, mentally, financially, and socially. That's what uncertain times do to us. But we are here tonight. I certainly enjoyed myself and to celebrate that we made it through this past year, mm-hmm. honoring those who didn't and knowing that recovering resilience is a process and we will never give up hope. And your ports tonight demonstrated they didn't give up hope. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much, and you're right. We made it through, those of us, we made it through 2020. Yes, Even with yes. all that gunk in our heads, we made it through 2020 many of us, and uh, that's such an important point to make. I'm so glad you made it, and thank you very, very much. How can I thank donate to DOMI? How can I, do, how can I donate to DOMI, D.C.? Uh, you can uh, donate to DOMI, D.C. by going to our website, domidc.org. We have a new website, uh, and then you can donate there pretty much. That is the best way to donate now. Our office has been closed for a year, but we still have an online brand-new website. Check it out. Uh, it lists all of our programs that we're engaged in and have and upcoming events. All right. Thank you so much. We also have callers. I'd like to bring them on. Your area code is 215. You're on the air. The first three numbers are 9796. You're on the air. Oh, sorry. I was just calling in to uh, support a friend. Sorry about that. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you for calling. Area code 402. You're on the air. The first three numbers are 763. You're on the air. Yes, I can. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yes. Hello? Yes. How are you? I I am good, and that was very uh, pleasant and soothing for my mind. I mean, I'm 
I, I just want to thank them for their for their work and for their uh, time tonight. And I'm glad to be here. I'm glad that I picked it up. I was a little late, but I'm glad I made it. All right. Well, thank you for calling in. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. Now it's time for our second round. We're going to start with Dr. Bijan. Dr. Bijan, you're on the air. Excellent. Um, I would like to first say that I'm just so inspired by the other poets and Jean's words tonight. Um, I really, um, it's amazing what people, it's one of those you, you never know what somebody's going through. And to hear the truth shared tonight, um, I feel that I'm not alone, but I also feel very inspired. Um, it took a long time to put my life back together, and I wouldn't even say that I've mm. come out the other end yet. <laughs> yes. Um, so yes. anyway, this is a very inspirational evening. Um, I would like the final poem I'd like to share is one that captures um, what it's like to be in a psychiatric emergency room. So when you have a psychiatric crisis and maybe you're picked up by the police or whoever and put in one of these emergency rooms. And so, um, you know, I, the other poets are not alone. I've certainly been in psychiatric hospitals. So here's just a poem about one such stay. It's called Moral Force of Character. You say I have no right to believe in morality that there is no universal good and evil? This is my answer. The reason I know is that I've already been to hell more than once. The first time was being pushed down a road while I was too drunk to walk the other way, and I kept saying that I want to go to St. Anthony's. After showing me photos of skeletons on your computer from your doctoral research, you fucked me on a bed that had not yet crossed my mind. I woke up smelling death. Then I had to live a label that I knew also represented the worst of humanity. But listen, I am the only one with a passport from my father's country that is a member of this elite label. Could I ever talk to him or Romania about the fact that that label is a lie? So I hid it from everyone for 10 years. In and out of spaces that that label never goes. One example, the dungeon that is Duke University Hospital Psychiatric Emergency Room. I thought I had already seen hell in Oxford. Nope. I was there again for the second time, in a room with lounge chairs facing each other and two rooms for solitary confinement in the corners, a heroin addict from the mountains coming off it and going hysterical, a Korean war vet with more dignity than any fucking label, and he's homeless. A young student who had been accused of being crazy by his university and the Durham police when he saw and called out hate. A woman with no teeth who could eat jello but not speak. A man who belonged to a gang for brown people with that acronym tattooed to his forehead. Another woman who resembled more of a wild animal than a human being and speech and behavior. And finally, my friend who I cannot name because I fear for her safety, who was brought in with force as she screamed in Arabic. The nurses and doctors were at a loss. They couldn't communicate with her. 
I asked the nurse, where's she from? Answer, Morocco. I approached the shaking lady in French. Bonsoir, madame. Good evening, madame. Qu'est-ce que vous arrivez? What has happened to you? Je n'ai aucun lien avec cet hôpital. I don't have any connection to this hospital. Qu'est-ce que s'est passé? What has happened? Only to discover that her husband was beating her up and told the police that she was the homicidal one. After talking as a group for days and an evening of eating pizza, watching Duke basketball, a new man came to this town. He said nothing. He just watched. And the last thing I remember from hell round two is this person looking me in the eye and telling me that I had it all figured out. So that's it. That's all I'm going to share, Dr. Ingram. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bijan. Thank you so much. The next poet is Brian Donald James. You're on, Brian. Thank you, everyone. Uh, again, every, it's been a wonderful evening. Um, I've sort of addressed um, <clears throat> a racism being a cause for uh, mental illness and uh, the last two pieces I would like to do swiftly uh, address uh, classism and uh, sexism. Uh, very quickly, I, I, when people say <clears throat> black, on gra- black on black crime, I don't believe in that. What, what I hear is crime because if it, it's a matter of, of, of classism because if it was in Russia, they don't say white on white crime. They say crime. If it's in China, they don't say Chinese on Chinese crime. They say crime. So, again, we must not allow other people's um, ideology affect us. Um, but I will go into this piece. It's called The Lesson. Uh, and in the interest of time, I will, I will try to read it swiftly uh, for time for my last one. <clears throat> the Lesson. Arm in arm, together they sang, some in tones slightly off-key, yet striking a perfect pitch within. They sang before him, their fallen mahogany prince as he lay in state caressed by sweet-smelling flowers that draped upon his chest. And even in death he was noble, he was beautiful, struck down in a hell of man-made lightning and thunder, struck down by the envy of another denied soul. Yes, it was all too soon, and thus the lesson would begin. Within the newly found faith or newly found fear, the songstress wails her haunting redemptions, a plea for deep almond eyes now weeping. Let them convey this pain so deeply rooted. Let them speak of this loss in warning. Yes, Lord, is heard. My God is cried. For the sheer thin veil of invincibility has been removed. Death is here. See, I hear your talk tough, youngin. Yes, I see your strong strut, youngin. But I'm a poet. I search souls. I search behind your threatening postures and menacing faces, your mask worn in deception. I still see you because I am you and you are me, both children exposed to lost innocence, nursed on streets of broken glass, dwelling in buildings graffiti-clad. We hustle. We survive. We are afraid because we know within this brotherhood, some will live and some will die. Not one rose given to us in life. 
So why do they cry when we die? Arm in arm, together we sang, some in tones slightly off-key, yet striking a perfect pitch within, because lessons in blood can never be erased. That is the end of that piece. And the last piece is called Roller Boy. One of the self-destructive things we do, and not only in the black community, but in all communities, is <clears throat> make people who, um, who are gay, uh, lesbian, and bi feel inadequate. They have the right to exist like every other human being on this world. And uh, this is a tale uh, from something I experienced as a child, and I would like to share it. It's called Roller Boy. The disco ball is in slow rotation, emanating, cascading showers of multicolored light throughout the roller rink. I watched this black boy in full afro stand and then pirouette in the middle of the floor. He was majestic, floating, now surrounded within a swirl of skaters rolling on the hardwoods. He was as lovely as a swan enclosed within the reeds. Yes, it seemed he was alone. Yes, it seemed we were alone. Just he and I in loneliness. See, them church folks say he gay. They say they know from the sway in his hips. They say when kids leave him beaten, teased, and called names on schoolyards that it's just child's play. How could words hurt? But if words truly hold no power, then why do they pray on Sundays? This was his introduction to judgment, this poor child. They wanted him to void his vibrancy, diminish his light, to train him to paint and faded silhouettes and muted rainbows, his invitation to hold shame and bury it forever. And although I never really knew you, I too was a black boy who knew loneliness far too well. I wanted to scream, do not accept their version of you. I tried to speak, but I could not utter a sound. It would be the last time I ever left someone in need. Roller boy, wherever you are in this world, I want you to know I thought of you every day since the day I saw you stand and then pirouette in the middle of the floor. You were majestic, floating, now surrounded within a swirl of skaters rolling on the hardwoods. You are as lovely as a swan enclosed within the reeds, and yes, I prayed for you so that you would never be alone. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Incredible work. Thank you for being you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Ms. Jackie Oldham. Thank you, Michael. The poem I'm going to read now is a work in progress. Uh, the title is part of that progress, and I will not state it, but I will, and it's a long work, so I'm abbreviating it. The true definition of bipolar is simple and impartial, having or marked by two mutually repellent forces or diametrically opposed natures or views. To be bipolar is not the same as being flighty, capricious, or whimsical, like forgetting your glasses are on your head and not your face, or mistaking your remote for your cell phone. To be mental is nothing like banging your fist on your steering wheel while stalled in traffic or forgetting where you parked in the mall. We are all bipolar. 
the difference is in degree. We all have competing thoughts, moods, emotions, reactions to everything we encounter. In the blink of an eye, we laugh to keep from crying. We weep tears of joy. The difference is in degree. If you are laughing to keep from crying and weeping tears of joy during a weekend at a Florida campground and after the gold rush is playing, while you're staring at a jet plane streaking across the blue sky and you're hoping the plane will stop for you and carry you off to the rapture, but you let out a blood-curdling scream because the jet plane left you behind, then your bipolarity is disordered. Your brain is playing tricks on your mind. You know something's wrong with your thinking, but you don't understand why. As your companion calls an ambulance, and the cops forcibly put you inside. At the hospital, you're led to a holding room with padding on all the walls. A nurse sternly studies you through the pain of the locked steel door. In confusion, you call out her name. She looks just like a waitress you know back in New Orleans, so you call out, Gaynell, but the nurse doesn't respond to you, just says, that's not my name. Finally, it occurs to you if you say the name she gives you, she will let you out of the room. She leads you to the day room to meet your new ward mates, where you will spend the next 72 hours trying to sort yourself out. There is a piano in the day room, and someone has a guitar. So you sit yourself at the piano, and you begin to play the opening strains of Stairway to Heaven, and the Indian girl starts to sing it, while the white guy strums guitar. And now you've made some friends for life, though you'll never remember their names, but you remember forever the label the doctor gives you, acute psychotic episode or new bipolar disorder. And so... The journey begins. Thank you. Powerful, Jackie. Thank you again for sharing your work. And Thank sharing you. Thank you All for right. having me. Yes. The next poet is Bato Phoenix. You're on the air. Um, great. Um, quickly, I just want to add one thing to what Jean said about donating to NAMI DC. Someone contacted me because they had trouble mm-hmm. using the website. If you have PayPal, you can email, you can send PayPal to ed at namidc.org. That's another way to do, make a donation. Will you um, say that one more time? Say that one more time. E, the letters ed at namidc.org. You can PayPal right. to that address. All right. Um, thank you. I am, I was inspired by uh, Christina sharing about psych words, and I'm just reading a, a poem that's a little bit of a reflection on that now pretty distant past. Um, I was last um, in a psychiatric ward in um, February of 2018. Um, so it's been three years, which is the longest time I've gone since I was 24 without needing to be hospitalized. Um, and I wrote this poem called Magnetic Water. I just published it earlier this week. 
It was my first night on the psych ward. I submerged the Bible in the toilet, imagining that I would recreate the sacred text over the course of my stay. I imagined that the water would unearth messages and channel symbols not visible to the naked eye. Floridly manic and coming down from a heavy stream of stimulants, it made perfect sense at the time. This biblical episode earned me the coveted honor of 24-hour supervision by a health aide until the day of my release. The push and pull of water captivates my mind. I remember summers at the beach when I still felt the unrelenting undulation of the waves and tides while I slept. I somehow felt a deeply rooted connection to the birthplace of life on our planet, a connection to ancestral memories, to middle passages, and to mutinies and revolutions. I remember my suicide attempt seven years ago, the acute anxiety of a panic attack tightened like a vice grip around my neck. So I sought refuge and relief in the frigid waters of the Potomac. Since then, when I cross the bridge, I feel a liminal subterranean pull, a blood memory dissolving in the tides. Water carries polarity and channels electricity. Ions merge, diverge, and percolate. These mysteries are pregnant with significance for me because Scorpio is a water sign and I am a Scorpio. I feel the power to surge through barricades like a tsunami or submerge a nation in water like a typhoon or to find the sinuous path of least resistance, life a meandering stream. When I was first in the grips of persistent recurring mania, I managed to get myself arrested a lot. I remember molding the contours of mud in a community garden plot soaked with water when I was arrested for indecent exposure. Incarcerated, I remember thinking that if I could somehow flood my cell with water, I could reverse time and open a new temporal portal. So I ruined a nice pair of Mew Mew boots trying to keep the toilet's water from draining, crafting a postmodern Diluvian episode. At the moment, there is an epic storm brewing, rain pummeling my fire altar, wind threatening to uproot trees. I feel the magnetism of the storm. I feel the aquatic magnetic fire. These are my war stories and my water stories, and I have grown from these lessons. I have learned to see wisdom in the tidal warnings of my elders. I have learned to seek humility and gratitude for the sea's blessings of abundance. Maybe someday I will rewrite the Bible, but I won't need to consult the psych ward for permission. Wow. That was so powerful. Thank you. I, I really, Thank you for sharing. I'm proud of it. I have, I'm in a social work program, and I just finished my first year, and in the last two weeks I've written like five new poems. I'm just on a tear. It feels great. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you, Papa Phoenix. All right. We've got two more poems, and then we'll open the floor, and it'll be time to close the evening. This is a poem by Madge O'Callaghan again from La Vesita, Ireland. It's called Insanity. We stumbled along the curving tree-lined drive. Ghosts in a green landscape, eyes twitching left and right in that mysterious garden fearing for our lives. 
haunted by our memory of that long night when screaming for him to hold her, she lashed out at those around her who tried to make it right. She was some other unknown blue-eyed girl, crouched pregnant, fetal position, lost to the world, strapped then to a table, tongue secured in mouth, zinging electrodes curl burned her memory and removed the constant pain. Promises of forgotten dreams that never returned. They broke that promise. She was never the same again. In fact, she stayed there all this time insane. It's a crime to feel so blue. It's a crime to feel so blue. Although I like the hue of blue as a color of ink in a pen. A fountain pen to be exact, one that glides gracefully across the page with certainty and purpose. It's that there is no pen, just the color blue, and the blue stain alone doesn't glide so easily their jagged edges and crevasses that hide years of despair. It's a crime to feel so blue. Although I like the hue of blue as a color of a suit, double-breasted if you will, sleek, secure, strong, but I'm not wearing a suit today just to color blue, and on me, blue alone doesn't look or feel as well. It hangs, it sags, and it weighs me down like an elevator carrying a heavy, heavy load. It's a crime to feel so blue. Although I like the hue of blue in the summertime as a backdrop for the sky, then its resplendent color highlights the white puffs of cotton that speckle the horizon. Yet it's wintertime, and the cerulean skies have gone, and what remains is just a color blue, now a melancholy shade that does nothing but remind me of the severity of my discontent is a crime to feel so blue. If you're my judge, either convict me or set me free. I don't want to be convicted anymore. I don't want to feel blue anymore. I'm going to be resilient. I'm going to empower myself to bounce back. I'm going to use those mechanisms that are important to me, such as poetry, such as finding mental health assistance, such as working with national organizations like NAMI to make changes in my life. I'm going to open up the floor now to everyone, and then we're going to call it a night. All right. You're on the air. Everyone is on the air. <laughs> All right. That was wonderful. Appreciate everybody. I just want to give a salute to everybody who performed and shared their pieces tonight. And you too, Michael. That was awesome. Well, thank you, sir. I'm really glad we had an opportunity to put on this program. It's one of my favorite programs of the year to put on. I would just like to say I'm, I'm amazed by how similar our stories are. And just the fact that we are all able to share them in ways that let other people know what the experience is like and what we can learn from it. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. I am. That's real life. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody on their way to the hospital. That was. I muted myself. Michael just on fire tonight, Michael. That was it. So on fire tonight. Fire. I want to. 
I just wanted to share a thought about the event, the program, which is that I feel like, you know, I feel like poets have an important role to play in crafting um, nuanced language for discussing the, um, the, the many ways mental health conditions express themselves in people's lives and to give people a sense of hope. Because to me, like, anyone can write a poem. Anyone. There's a very mm-hmm. low bar. for, and, and, and I think that creativity is very tied to mental health stuff. And creativity mm-hmm. is a great healer. I constantly run into people who say they're not creative. And I'm like, well, you got dressed this morning. Like, wow. you know, <laughs> you, you, you figured out how to put some things together that match. That's a creative act. I think human beings <laughs> yeah. are an instinctually creative species. If you want to figure out whether some people were hanging around in some old cave, you look for paintings on the wall of horses or whatever, you know? So, you know, I think that we are, um, we're in a changing world. Um, We're in, for in so many ways. And um, this has just been a really beautiful note of hope for me in this week. So I want to thank everyone. And also, if you are interested in, um, if any of you are interested in doing ongoing um, events with NAMI DC, um, we have kind of a regular creativity and mental health kind of work that we do. So um, feel free to reach out to me through Michael or through my website, yes. which was shared earlier. All right. Anyone else? Final thoughts as we close. I I would like to say something. I, I you know, I talked with, uh, with, uh, with Michael before the show and, I just hope we we help somebody tonight. You know, if you're suffering from something, please, uh, please reach out and 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 get the help uh, uh, that you need. Um, uh, that said, um, if you enjoyed my work, uh, more can be found at BrianDonaldJames.com, or you can contact Dr. Ingram. And if um, if you have an organization or something, I'd love to be a part um, uh, of something positive and, you know, helping people like tonight. Uh, but, but, again, we, we, we just wanted to get together and help someone tonight. So if you, if you have some issues, please reach out. All right. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? Yeah, I'd like to say thank you for the invitation. It's been an honor to share this space with everybody. And the final note I'd like to end on um, – Bipo Phoenix had, he talked about connections um, in one of his poems. And I've been thinking a lot about recently in my own life how important community is. So um, if you are struggling, my first advice would be, you know, surround yourself with love, family. If you don't have family, friends, if you don't have friends, community, find NAMI, find NAMI DC. Um, And I really believe that if we have more community support, because we live in the most individualistic country in the world, right? And so I believe that it really is community, at least in my case, that that has helped so much. Absolutely. All right. All right. Well, I'd like to thank everyone. Jen, you got anything else you want to say? Well, I was was just going to say I'm so glad to be a part of this. NAMI DC is here, has been here for 40 years supporting people and listening, not necessarily providing a clinical therapy, but definitely twice a week we have support groups, and I am honored in watching how 
people support each other as they move through their recovery and resilience through poetry and just talking and even communicating with one another. So we are there, have other programs. You can look at the website, check us out uh, to help people to live and stay in their recovery. I was pleased to be here tonight. Thank you so much, Michael, and all yes. the poets. Your poems inspired me so much. Well, I have a smile on my face, and I am so thrilled that the program turned out well. Yes, um, it was a beautiful, beautiful program, and I want to thank everyone. So be safe to our listening audience as I share every week. Take care. Let poetry ring. Until next week, good night. Good night to everyone. Take care, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. You have just listened to the Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio Podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.